Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. everybody, welcome to a new episode of Undying Light. I am your host Alex and bringing back at you again with some more content in the book of Revelation. This week we will be visiting chapter 17 and looking at the great prostitute and the beast. And so we will take a look at what John has in store for us this week. Um, So just a little bit of headway here, how we're going to plan out these last few weeks. Uh, we have a lot of content to get through yet uh, as we are closing down this series. We have six episodes left. That means we are going to basically look at uh, a chapter a week. So this week is 17, then we'll look at 18, 19, 20, 21, and then 22 will actually be done uh, probably in two episodes. So we'll split that last. Uh, and then as we close the series out, we'll do maybe a little bit of a round panel uh, roundtable panel type discussion and we will kind of talk through the whole series a little bit and bring some highlights and some struggles and some you know still questions that might need to be clarified things like that we'll dig into that so maybe we'll do a question Q&A box about uh, eschatology focused questions and then we'll answer those on the show uh, in hopes of what we've kind of discovered in this particular journey so a lot in store in coming your way in this wrapping up of this very, very long series. Uh, On top of that, I have mentioned we're going to venture into the realm of doing some bonus Tuesday episodes again. Uh, Don't know when we're going to get those rolling, possibly August, maybe a little bit into September, depending on how uh, the school year pans out for me. Um, It is low priority, but it is uh, high on my heart to start working on some of that content. So we're going to look at kind of a journey through the biblical call uh, for men to be men and what it means to be a biblical man, a kingdom man, and one who leads his family. Uh, And so we'll be digging into that uh, over the course of a few uh, episodes. We'll get some guests and we'll talk about, you know, all that kind of work. That might be what we really venture into the Tuesday realm, and so we'll look at a lot of different concepts of what it means 
to be uh, biblically rooted and grounded as a man in today's society and how we are to take on the world uh, with that in our eyesight. So that will be something we're working on. Uh, I need to just kind of get the framework uh, planned and, and see where it leads us in the coming months. So keep that on your radar. It might be something interesting for you to share with your boyfriend or husband or sons um, or just something interesting for you to pick up and have your eyes for the women listening to um, find that true man if you are single. So we'll look into that. We'll look into all sorts of different concepts of that identity. I have been kind of doing a series on my Instagram walking people through that process and just really making making it a call for action that we need men who will stand up and take on this fight that this world is giving us and we cannot be com, uh, complacent and we can't just you know roll over and live life on our bellies thinking that somebody else is going to do the work because we need to get up and do it so that'll be something I'm working on and possibly coming Hopefully soon, um, that is my goal. As we are working midway through July now, it has been a busy month, it's been a busy year, and uh, things are going really, really smooth, and I am very excited for the way the show is continuing on. I'm almost probably more excited that we're close to the end of the series, because uh, it would be a breath of fresh air to just be out of eschatology. We've been talking about it for a long time. And I'd love to get into some of the other topics. The next series we're going to hold is going to look at some of the lesser-known Bibles, uh, Bible books and uh, characters from those books. Uh, some of these historical figures that don't often get talked about too much in the church. Uh, we'll look at some of the kings of Israel and some of the judges. And we'll kind of do a real, sh I'd say, short series. I think I have a plan for six or eight episodes. And so we're going to kind of pin that together uh, that will be coming to your way in September. And then after that, we're going to get in and start doing some exegeting of books. And we will look at some of the New Testament and we'll do Old Testament and things like that. So we'll just go verse by verse, kind of like what we're doing in Revelation, but not from the eschatological perspective. We'll just be looking at this in general in hopes that we can help teach and provide better clarity to Scripture and what it's doing. And so... Uh, we'll get more um, visual eyesight on particular passages. That will be coming your way uh, towards the end of the year, possibly early 2022. As always, we'll do a Christmas series in December. So we'll uh, take a break from wherever we are and do Christmas, and then we'll go back into the series in January. So that's kind of what the next couple of months uh, lay out for us as in tail for this podcast. Um, and as always, you know, I, I talk about it every week, and I am so blessed to have everybody who contributes because we are a listener-supported show. And so if you are interested in uh, finding a way to help support the show, even if it's a dollar a month, it goes a long way to helping us continue to produce content on a week-to-week -week basis. And so if you are interested, we are on Patreon and uh, you can join us there. It's uh, www.patreon.com forward slash undying light. All of those links are in the show notes. So check us out. Come and join this wonderful community and get access to so much behind the scenes. You'll get early release of the show. You'll get my sermon notes when I 
produce them for my Sunday morning service. You'll get any schoolwork that I'm working on. You'll also have commentary that we're doing through the book of Galatians. And then you get uh, just other odds and ends, perks and things like that. We'll do, we're going to do a meetup in a week. Uh, so you'll, you can get on Zoom with us and join us and chat. And we uh, just have a wonderful community of like-minded believers that can get together and talk about all sorts of different things, rant, and um, just kind of get stuff off our chest about what's going on. And then we continue going forward in life together. So a dollar a month gets you access to all that. I don't have tiers. I don't have anything like that set up. It is literally $1 a month gives you access to everything we do at Undying Light. Uh, we're revamping the merch uh, side of the kind of business, if you would, for Undying Light. We're looking at a couple of new vendors. Um, I've got a particular person working on doing some possible new uh, designs for the shirts and mugs and things like that. So keep your eyes out for that to come your way across social media because we're going to be uh, laying into that in the next couple of weeks pretty heavily to bring f- better quality and more options in terms of Undying Light uh, apparel and accessories and things of that nature. So um, the other, the last thing I have, guys, for those who are interested in this fitness uh, lifestyle, because I've done a poll and it seems like a lot of people who follow me on Instagram really take their fitness and health very, uh, they take it, they're very, you know, it's very important to them. And so uh, I have just taken this journey upon myself to get back into shape and to change my life. And so I have a fitness page um, that I just kind of track my progress and I talk about what I'm doing and, and, and how, what has helped me. And so you can catch me there. It is just at alex.zinc. You can find me that way. I also share the page from time to time on my social media page on Reform Lifestyle. But I also talk about some of the things that have really impacted me and how I have really been changed in the last couple of weeks. So be sure to check that out and see what all of that is going on. And, of course, you can DM me and I'll answer any and all questions. So that is where we stand um, before the show begins. As I said today, we're going to look at just Chapter 17. We have a lot of content, and so I want to dig into it. We're going to read the first few verses, um, and then we'll uh, pick back up and see where we, we stand. There is 18 verses in this chapter. I might just go ahead and read all of them, and then we'll just kind of pick our way through it. So here we go. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of those sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And so he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, That was full of blasphemous names, and on it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adored with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and the earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drink... 
with the blo- drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I grieved. I, I, I'm sorry. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of this woman and the beast with the seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go into destruction. And the dwellers on the earth whose names who have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel and see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind of wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is the other has not yet come. And when he does, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven. And it goes to destruction. This is verse 12. And the ten horns that you saw are the ten kings who have not re- yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. For he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings, and those who are with him are called and chosen and faithful. Verse 15, And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples in the multitudes of the nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up in fire. For God has put into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being one of of one mind and handing them over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. So we got a lot going on here. A lot happening in these 18 verses and a lot. I think can be leveled out as we will start to unpack some of this. We'll, we'll meet this harlot uh, and we'll really see um, what is coming from this. Uh, and then we will recognize the returning essentially of this beast, uh, the beast's war on Christ and uh, the self-destruction of evil and the rejoicing of God and the victory that he will have. So, there's a lot happening, but easily we can walk ourselves through this and start to uh, break it out and help us to understand it. Because here's the thing that I really want people to understand that we've taken upon looking at the book of Revelation is we don't take it at a literal perspective. Uh, because we we get these images here, especially in verses uh, 2 through 6, that really draw and would paint this just bizarre picture uh for instance in verse three and he carried me away into the uh, carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness okay uh and i saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast okay it's a little weird uh and then that was full of blasphemous names and on it had seven heads and ten horns Hmm. All right. So uh, considering the fact that she's holding a cup full of abominations 
and the impurities of her sexual immorality in verse 4. So it, it really stretches to try and take this all at a literal stance. Um, but not that it can't be done. It absolutely can be if you hold to this particular form of interpretation and you will have to be consistent in that and what you would take as literal or symbolic uh, we are very much so looking at this from a symbolical perspective as we have most of the book of Revelation. And I think it, it just, you know, proves to be challenging for some of these very hyper dispensationalist people out there. Not to say that all dispensational people hold the same views, because I've noticed there are varying degrees um, in these in this particular camp. And I am great friends with some of these individuals, and I love them deeply. And so I, I find that some of these verses are challenging, though, uh, in terms of interpretation. And uh, if you were to go to, like, the Left Behind series-type people, um, they would really look at this and just flat out say, well, it, it is what it is, and this is what we will take. And so... They literally think a woman will be sitting on a scarlet beast that is full of blasphemous names, however they would be able to describe that. Um, and then she's drinking this cup full of abominations, and however they would describe that. So it's, it's a challenge, to say the least. And this entire book has been a challenge. This is not an easy read. It is not an easy interpretation. And the one I am presenting to you is just one of many forms of interpretation there are other ways to read this book and understand eschatology that has been you know this the claim made from the very beginning of this series that you don't have to agree with my uh, interpretation you don't have to agree with my perspective uh, but i am just if, asking to show you that there are you know other views out there than just the commonly accepted because dispensationalism is probably one of the most held views of eschatology by many people in the church and and they don't really even know that they hold to it they just do so out of just what they've kind of always been brought up as and that's that's fine it, it is a large camp to um, that that is full of people and, and wonderful people I, I just want to ensure that we are taking this as you know providing a very different view and hopes that it will encourage you to continue doing your own research and uh, unpacking. So we we get into chapter 17 here. We we have begun a new part. Uh, we are in part six now of this seven-part series. It's a new section uh, in the book of Revelation. Uh, and for its John's tour guide is one of the seven angels that we see here uh, at the very opening of the verse. And he's uh, one of these angels who poured out a bowl of wrath upon the earth. Uh, this indicates that this sixth cycle will uh, cumulate into the judgment of Christ's enemies. Uh, the, the one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, and I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute. That's verse 1. And before God brings an end to the idolatrous world system, he wants John and his readers to see, to, to really see what it is, to really get the full perspective, 
to see exactly what this system really is entailing. Uh, John sees worldly culture personified as a detestable harlot, awash with iniquity and violence, who has not only turned from godly virtue, but has used her sinful pleasures to lead multitudes into idolatry. This opening verse in chapter 17 presents five notable features in describing the great prostitute. Her location, her mount, her adornment, her cup of abominations, and her name, which unfolds the mystery of her role in history. So we begin here with this first feature. If we're going to kind of break down this uh, harlot, who this woman is, uh, we want to try and provide as much detail as we can and helps to understand uh, this perspective and this interpretation of scripture. And so uh, we've got these five uh, views, these features that describe her. And so we are going to look here at this first is the location uh, that is given. So John relates to the angel that he was carried away in the spirit into the wilderness. Now, the wilderness is several meanings in scripture can depict uh, barren results of sin. Um, in Matthew's gospel, the wilderness is inhabited by demons, as chapter 12, verse 43 states. And Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil in chapter 4. And if we look at Isaiah, he describes the desert as a place from which invaders would come to destroy Babylon. And later, Babylon will herself be turned into a wilderness, as we will get to in next week's episode. Earlier in Revelation, the desert was where God prepared a refuge for the church to be kept safe during this great tribulation. And since Babylon is the quote-unquote great city where sin festers, the wilderness is also a place where John can view the harlot while being out of reach of her sinful allures. Persecution and social rejection will often cause Christians to be excluded from worldly society, but this very seclusive seclusion offers a refuge from the allure of sin. Uh, this is what Dennis Johnson writes. For John and the church in the wilderness combines physical suffering and spiritual reality for Babylon and her des uh, destiny of desolation. So this is the location where she's out in the wilderness. Our second feature that we were going to talk about is her mount and this brazen woman is mounted on a quote-unquote scarlet scarlet beast that is full of blasphemous names and on it had seven heads and ten horns this is verse three uh, there is no question that this beast is the persecuting tyrant of earlier visions the antichrist government uh, rulers of the earth and the seven heads correspond to the four beasts back in Daniel chapter 7, which stood for violent world kingdoms. And the ten horns identified Daniel's fourth beast, the Roman Empire. This composite beast thus symbolizes all of the great persecuting powers which, for, that, which rules by brute force and is the supreme enemy of the church and Christ. The beast's scarlet color identifies him with Satan, the red dragon, and reflects his bloody persecution of the saints. The blasphemous names reflect his idolatrous demand to be worshipped. The very danger facing John's readers from, this, from the Roman emperor in that day. 
And so we get this, you know, persona here. Now we know her location. She's in the wilderness. We know this beast, which is the ruling uh, governments throughout all of history. This symbolizes all of the great persecuting powers and uh, all of the enemies of the church and Christ throughout the history of time. That is what this beast is symbolizing. This is exactly what has come against Christ and his church. And so we move on to the third, and this is amplified. This is her adorning. Uh, She's arrayed in purple and scarlet and arrayed with gold and jewels and pearls. William Hendrickson writes, she is gorgeously arrayed and excessively adored, clothed with purple and scarlet, for she sits as a queen. The first thing we notice is the costliness of her garb. Scarlet dye was expensive, and purple was so costly that it was a symbol of aristocrats and royalty. She adds the gaudy symbol shimmer of jewels and pearls to complete the impression of wealth and carnal beauty. Now, I like what G.K. Beale writes on this. He says, She is the symbol of a culture that maintains the prosperity of economic commerce, as well as reflecting the quote-unquote outward attractiveness by which whores try to seduce others. So as we move along, we get to this fourth uh, view here, this description that we're getting, uh, and it's the cup that she's holding, this cup full of abominations. And it suggests the riches and glory. One expects the most precious drink from such a precious vessel. While its contents impoverish the soul and disgrace those who drink it, the abomination speaks of things especially offensive to God, such as false worship, occult practices, and sexual perversions, such as homosexuality and gross indecency. Uh, While uh, the impurities refers to sinful corruptions in general, the point is not merely in binding of impurity and sin, but their intoxicating influence in promoting idolatry in the place of faith of the true God. Now we get to this last little bit here as we go through these five uh, pieces to help describe her, these five notable features, uh, and this is going to be her name. And we will get this in addition to the name being Babylon the Great. She is named the mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. As verse 5 states, not only is the Herod herself a prostitute with whom the kings of earth have committed sexual immorality and the wine of those sexual immorality, the dwellers on earth have become drunk. But she is the mother superior over all of those who commit spiritual prostitution by worshiping the beast. It does not stretch the imagination to think of young American girls who, uh, who put the values of secular society in early life and take on the appearance and values exemplified by this harlot. This symbolizes the spiritual idolatry of a culture that is turned from God. Just as Christian women are to possess a virtue completely opposite of the harlot and her diabolatry, the Christian church as a whole is to live in holy separation from the sinful corruptions that will dominate any culture that has been given over to secular humanistic ideology and to the consumer economically driven 
by sensual pleasure into the state idolatry into which the powers of the world are worshipped in place of God. And so we have kind of described who this woman is and her her attempts to lure men and women away from God and to essentially drink the cup of wrath that God will pour out among them. But she does she does this by giving them you know, the taste of sin and making it taste pleasant. Uh, she does this through various means within the world, whether it's sexual immorality or some sort of economic uh, prosperity that has been given to people, those who seek wealth and, and jewels and riches of this world, uh, those who seek power. All of these things are given to those who go th to her for it. And so, Really, what we come to this answer now is what can we expect from the world? And the point of John's vision of the harlot is for Christians to see the truth of what the world really is. Let me, let me be really frank with that. It works like a fairy tale in which the magic of the beautiful seductress wears off to reveal a hideous and evil witch. This is the reality of the world we live in. There's nothing that can can really solve the world's problems other than the gospel of Christ. And what we come to find out is when we peel the mask off, when we pull the layer back, we see the world for what it truly is. It is a engine driven to enslave people in sin at every level. And it's most commonly done in idolatry because we are taking our worship from God and placing it upon our sexualities, our identities, our uh, economic statures, our power, at whatever company we work for, what position we have in society. All of these things are, are being amplified because that is the way the world works. Do you really see the world for what it is? This is the question really heavily posed in this chapter. Can you, as a Christian, truly see and understand that uh, this world stands in opposition to God? And now, the, really, it's the problem is not the world itself, right? God created this world and it was absolutely beautiful. And the problem is not the world, but it is the secular humanistic system that is constantly in rebellion to God. That is the problem. And apart from God's rule of grace and truth, the world falls into deadly alliance with the prostitute's moral corruption and the tyrant's abuse of power. So this model of this de decadent world system is the ancient Rome that dominated the world during John's time. This is why where we get a lot of these examples from that really still play true to many aspects today. This chapter in particular alludes directly to Rome several times. Daniel uh, Rome is Daniel's fourth beast with 10 horns. Rome is identified by Christians under the codename Babylon. And Revelation 17:9 speaks of the seven hills which can only mean Rome symbolizing the dominant world system of political, cultural, economic, and military powers in all times. She is the prostitute who is seated on many waters, as verse 1 has stated. Speaking of Rome's 
pervasious influence on world culture and power. So, again, we we have to understand, you know, right placement of time and and understanding what John is getting at. John is alluding much of what he is seeing to the current climate in the world where Rome is the dominating power, but yet we see a lot of these elements that kind of cascade out of Rome and through time and have accompanied and kind of surround these major uh, nations that have arisen and fallen and all of the persecution that has occurred to Christians over the time uh, that John has wrote this letter to today. And so we we start to uh, really put this picture together, per se, of, of what is really happening. And so I think it's really important for us to really see and understand the world. And it, and it helps to understand the world through what John is writing, but also through kind of the deceptive layer that Satan has masked it with and for us to understand it today. Persecution has spread all over the world today, just as it even loomed over John's churches and appears throughout the early churches uh, in the first few centuries. More Christian blood has, was spilt in the 21st century than any previous century. And the 21st century is uh, seeing Christian martyrdom reach new heights. If John marveled at the horror, at the blood of saints uh, that was spattering the harlots' rich clothing, he would grieve the slaughter of believers today, especially in the nations that are governed by Islam. On the whole, however, persecution is not a very effective strategy for really harming the church. While making Christians suffer, persecution actually strengthens the church, weeding out false converts and turning suffering saints to their Lord in prayer. Finally, the Great Tribulation will cause Jesus to return to resave and avenge his bride. His call to Christians in the face of persecution is simply this. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Satan infiltrates the church not only with immoral practices, but also with false doctrine. And this is what Jesus complained to Pergamum. He says, so also you have some who hold out to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. We talked about that earlier in our series. Paul wrote to the Galatians to warn of a serious danger of false teaching on salvation. Paul writes that if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received, let him be accursed. Today, the church is beset with theological liberal, liberalism, and it submits to the Bible, submits the Bible to worldly critiques f- with health and wealth, prosperity teaching that degrades the gospel to a mere worldly blessings, and with a therapeutic gospel that is driven by pulp psychology and downplays the importance of sin, redemption, and the Bible's call for holiness, holiness in a lifestyle of costly obedience. We know that the world has essentially given us bumpers to stay within. We have a little a little track that the Bible believing churches can stay within, otherwise those individuals will experience persecution. And not only that, the world and Satan for that matter has corrupted within a lot of these churches to become more pleasing to the world. 
And the big thing that has been blowing up in and around the church the last couple of weeks, months, um, probably a year and a half maybe now, is critical race theory. And that is this concept that, you know, we have to atone for the sins of our past uh, generations and we must find a way to elevate others with a particular skin color to be better or higher and we must give them all of the things that they deserve even when they don't work for it that they should just be given everything on a silver platter that is the generation that we deal with today that we should reward those who don't work for anything because of the color of their skin and woe to you if you happen to be white just saying that's what critical race theory kind of sums up. There's more to it, but it's a mess nonetheless. And all of this infiltrated has infiltrated the church, and churches are now shouting from their hills, saying, "We we are doing this, and we uh, we believe that you know you are you are right." And they're going to the world and asking for forgiveness and all this stuff, and it just is exhausting, absolutely exhausting. So as we move on here in these last few verses, this is kind of the second section here in chapter 17. Uh, We're going to look at the mystery of the woman and the beast. uh, And this is where we will spend the latter half of our show. So one of the great figures of the Scottish Reformation, if you follow this individual, Samuel Rutherford, I enjoy a lot of his writings and his views, um, but he spent most of his life under persecution. As a young man, he was exiled from uh, for teaching salvation by grace, and as an old man, he was condemned to die for s- insisting that the king was subject to God's law. Observers have wondered how Rutherford maintained his life of joyful faith Amid such troubles, and the answer is found in this beautiful hymn that he wrote um, that paraphrases his dying words in his hopes in Christ. This is what it says. The sands of time are sinking, the dawn of heaven breaks, the summer morns I have sighed for, the, the fair sweet morn awakes. Dark, dark hath been the midnight, but daylight spring is at hand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. This vision that we have from 17 is intended to promote a similar attitude. John has seen this great prostitute Babylon riding on the scarlet beast drenched in the blood of the saints. And when I saw her, he said, I marveled greatly. And it seemed that John was set back by the appalling vision. The angel followed up, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and the, and the beast with the seven heads and ten horns that carries her. This interpretation of this vision was designed to comfort John's fear and encourage him to persevere in faith. The angel's message is organized by three points of this passage. First, that John needs to recognize the beast in the manner of his appearing. Second, he needs to understand the powers arrayed by the beast for uh, war against Christ. And third, he's to marvel at the destruction that God has ordained to be at work between the harlot and the beast, displaying his sovereign power. The perspective we gain from studying this difficult chapter is intended to give us, like Rutherford, a boldness to stand for God in this hostile world. And so that is the premise, you know, to this whole 
chapter is for us to have this courage to stand in face against the world, in this hostile world. So by this time in Revelation, we are familiar with this beast who represents the violent worldly power arrayed against God and his people. He's first mentioned all the way back in chapter 11, where he briefly had the power to slay the two witnesses symbolizing the martyred church until they were raised from the dead before God's judgment on the beast. In chapter 12, we learn that the beast's master, the seven-headed dragon Satan, makes unsuccessful war against the church, which conquers him by the blood of Christ and the word of their testimony. In chapter 13, John again sees this beast making war on the saints, being permitted by God to conquer them for a limited period. This background material fits with the description in Revelation 17:8, A beast that you saw and is not, and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. The pattern follows the record of Satan in history. The devil was, and then is not. That is, he reigned over the nations in sin until Christ defeated him on the cross and overthrew his kingdom. This does not minimize the evil activity of Satan in his own time but points out that his power has been restrained so that the gospel may go forward into the world. Although his reign was and now is not, there will be a brief time at the end of history when he will be permitted to, quote-unquote, deceive the nations and gather them for battle against Christ. Therefore, Satan was, is not, and is about to rise again. When it comes to the beast, this same pattern occurs in history, there's the Pharaoh of Egypt, and then we have the Assyrians, and then Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon in the Old Testament. Between the old, te the two Testaments, there is Antiochus, who persecuted the Jews, Harold the Great, who persecuted and uh, the children and tried to slay the uh, Christ child. All of these beastly tyrants had their bloody day of power until God cast them down. They were, and then were not. But always the beast rose again, as in Nero and his persecution of the Christians. And now in John's time, in the menace of the emperor uh, Domitian, G.K. Beale writes, the situation will continue until Christ's final coming, at which time the beast's success over God's people will seem even greater than before. Robert Muntz adds, down through history, he repeatedly comes up with, from the abyss to harass and, if it were possible, to destroy the people of God. Recognizing this pattern, Christians who live in godly times should be aware that evil is only waiting to come back. Likewise, Christians who are suffering under persecution know that the beast who has arisen is soon to be defeated, just as it is uncertain that the beast will rise from the bottomless pit, he will go down to destruction. The abyss is the place of darkness that is the very opposite of heaven, the beast rise in the abyss is always a prelude to his return to the abyss and defeat and disgrace. Now we get to this idea that we must tackle with this war on Christ. We get to this next concept here in this chapter and understanding the beast's war on Christ. And we start to unpack at how Satan has waged war and it continues to do so. And we've really looked at this from a few different lenses now through this uh, study that we've done in the book of Revelation. So the angel begins by saying that the seven heads are seven mountains behind which the woman is seated. 
This seems to be a clear reference to Rome, the seven hills, which were at John's time the main representative of the beast in the harlot's seductions. Some scholars have pointed to other cities with seven hills, such as Jerusalem, but seven-hilled city was particularly a name for Rome, just as Chicago is the Windy City and New York is the Big Apple. Today, moreover, mountains are often used in the Bible to depict spiritual powers arrayed against God, and this image fits perfectly with John's warning to the churches in Revelation. The beast is about to raise, rise again from the abyss, centering his power in Rome, using emperor worship to persecute the church. So if the seven hills are easy to understand, what follows is not. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen, one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. There are three main theories for interpreting this verse two of which are historical and one is symbolic. The first historical approach sees the seven kings as successive Roman emperors. The idea is that five emperors have fallen, one currently reigns, and one will be brief in the future. And the problem with this approach is that the uh, that Domitian was the 12th Roman emperor, not the sixth. If we start with Augustus Caesar, the list includes uh, Tiberius, uh, Caligula, Claudius, and Nero as five fallen rulers. The sixth would have been Vespirian, uh, which is not fit if Revelation was written during the reign of Domitian, as most scholars believe. Even this approach leaves out three emperors who briefly ruled after the fall of Nero. So it's virtually impossible to make this particular theory without arbitrarily manipulation. The second historical approach is sees the seven kings as world empires in history. Here, too, it's certain to which names ought to be included. It, it is not certain. Uh, we can include anybody such as Babylon, Assyria, New Babylon, Meadow, Persia, Greece, uh, as fall, five fallen empires, Rome as the sixth that was reigning. Uh, but then you also have Egypt, Nineveh, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and five fallen kingdoms. You know, there it seems to be different perspectives based upon different historians. And the main problem with this particular approach is that seventh empire, though, which has not yet come. And when he does, he only comes for a little while. One approach here is to identify this as the church state empire that began with the Constantine, that began with Constantine the Great in 8312, including all subsequent history in Europe. It seems arbitrary, however, to include all of the empires of the two millennia. That would include places such as the United States, um, the Nazi Germany under Adolf Hitler, the English dynasties, all of the communist countries. It would be very difficult to put them all under one banner. And so the problems with this, these historical approaches leads us to consider a more symbolic approach, especially since the numbers of 7 and 10 have been used this way throughout the book of Revelation. 7 stands for the completeness, and here would represent the totality of the Antichrist government throughout history. Picture a beast with 7 heads, 5 of which have been cut off. The idea is that Christ's first coming inflicted a deadly blow to Satan and his beast, which 
who continue to fight undaunted, employing the power of the deadly six head with a seventh yet to come. The point is that the war is getting closer to its end. John's readers were not at the end. Theirs was the sixth head, but the phrase was beginning. This fits Paul's teaching that with the church, the end of ages has come, as 1 Corinthians 10.11. The conflict will be fierce, but the end is not far off. The image of the beast thus mirrors the earlier statement that Satan has filled is filled with wrath at the church because he knows that his time is short. We talked about that in Revelation 12. So when the end comes, the church will face an eighth head. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven and goes to destruction. Verse 11. Eight is the number of the resurrection, which fits the Antichrist's attempts to masquerade as Christ. And like all previous horns, he is bent on world domination and rebellion to God. But he is different in that he is the genuine beast. He is not a human ruler through whom the power of evil finds expression. He is evil. He is that evil power itself. He belongs to the cosmic struggle between God and Satan, which lies behind the scenes of human history. Yet he will appear on the stage of history as a man. Revelation 17.12 says that the seventh king has ten horns, which are the ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. In the early 90s, it was common for dispensationalists to identify the ten horns with the European common market on the premise that a reunifi reunified Europe could would have been the seventh head of the beast having ten horns. Since then, there were nine member nations, preachers, assured their hearers that the entry of a tenth nation would signal the final tribulation in Christ's return. Today, when the European Union consists of 28 nations, this theory seems less plausible. So, instead, these ten horns should be taken, or at least are best taken, symbolically. We've talked about ten being a number for completion. This time represents the subordinate powers that assist the imperial beast, in John's day, Rome was organized into ten providences, uh, which were mainly provonical leaders who persecuted Christians. More generally, the ten horn symbolizes the mighty ones of this earth and, and every, er, every realm, whether it's art, education, commerce, industry, government, and so far they uh, all serve a central authority. With such allies exercising his authority, the Antichrist will dominate all of society, but only for a brief time, for one hour, during which period he will exalt himself in power, being of one mind. The horns will hand over their power and authority to the beast, and they will make war on the lamb. This global force at his command, the beast will seek to eradicate the Christian church and claim the lordship that belongs to Jesus, Christians often marvel at the apparent delusion of the media, educators, entertainers, and legislators in support of agendas that are obviously immoral and self-destructive. The explanation is that their moral rebellion against God and their rejection of Christ, they enter, usually unknowingly, into the service of the beast who animates them with, deceit, with the deceitful spirit of the abyss. The only possible result of this warfare, however greatly the church may briefly suffer, is the total victory of Christ. The Lamb will conquer them, 
for he is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. In a previous vision, worldly society worshipped the beast marveling, who is like this beast and who can fight against it? In the appearing of Jesus, the world receives its answer. That is incredible to think of. That is trying to marvel at such a, a notion that the world is so deceived to state that who could be like this beast? Who could fight against it? When Christ is continuously preached and shown to be the victor, even with this particular content in our hands today, we will still have many who are deceived. So John here is to recognize that the beast, when he rises from the abyss, as well as the Antichrist, gathering forces of war. And this final lesson calls for John to marvel at the self-destructive nature of a worldly society. In verse 9, showing the harlot sitting on the seven mountains as mighty ones come uh, become drunk from her corrupting wine. Verse 18 now describes her as the great city that the domination over the kings of the earth. A harlot symbolizes the entire economic and cultural system to which the world depends. Verse 15 describes her spread of immoral culture throughout the world. The waters of what you saw where the prostitute is seated, the peoples and the multitudes and the nations and languages. Steve, Steve Welmhurst writes, Satan is building his anti-church from every nation just as the Lord is building the true church from every nation and language. Like polluted waters flowing from Babylon, the harlot's descent, uh, decadent culture spreads through her arrogant confidence, through the heart-sealing seduction of her promises of prosperity, and through the brute force of the beast's military might. And so we get this concept here that all of these things are connected, and they really just are greatly demonstrated throughout time as the world system. As I mentioned earlier, the question is, is can you really see the world for what it is? Do you truly see how Satan is the manipulator behind all of these things? He is the ultimate puppet master using man to forego his bidding. They are all puppets of Satan. So given this close relationship to the harlot we make, uh, we would expect the tyrannical beast to care and protect her. Instead, the opposite happens. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. And they will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up in fire. Having enjoyed her allurements, the worldly powers turn in hatred on the harlot. They strip her of her gorgeous clothing and jewelry and stand naked in disgrace. They hack and devour her flesh. They consume her to flames to be consumed. So why is this? One question is that this pleasures of sin ultimately disappoint, turning evil men in on one another in frustration. Another is that this beast and the worldly rulers do not love the people they used to. Grant Osborne writes, Satan and his fallen angels have no love for human beings who are made in the image of God and are still loved by God. This final vision supplies virtual less, vital lessons. First, young people are warned against the dream of becoming a movie star or a popular singer, receiving the world's adorning worship. Not only is it wrong in itself to desire a place in the harlot's idolatry, but experience shows that virtually all the stars and scarlets 
are first corrupted and then cast off by a contemptuous world. Second, we find here the principle that those who are uh, unfaithful to God cannot be trusted by anybody. And I was actually, interestingly enough, watching a video kind of midway through recording this as I paused for a break. And this individual was talking about the music industry and how uh, there's so much symbolical occult images in music today, especially from the big mainstream artists. I'm not talking about, you know, Christian artists, but, you know, people like Jay-Z and Beyonce and all of these big names out there. And he's going on and talking about how they use the imagery of, you know, the hand symbols and pictures and uh, all of these things to push forward their agenda. And they do so through subliminal messaging and they do it through their works and music videos and, and the songs. And they entice people to give up the things that are godly and to pursue the things that are ungodly. And so I, I thought that was ironic that people are you know, speaking up and out against that, even though they may not get a lot of airway because the media will obviously squander that and it'll be written off as foolish conspiracy theorists. But it's true if we start to reel back in here what Revelation is saying, that this is the world that Satan has designed. This is the occult that these individuals find themselves in, whether they're selling their souls to Satan or whatever it may be. They are a part of this atrocity and they stand opposed to Christ. All for what? A simple moment of glory? A fat paycheck? But what they are doing is drinking the wrath of God for all of eternity. So the bulk of this chapter really describes the anti-Christian forces at work in history. John is to recognize the appearing of the beast even when he seemed to, to be defeated. He is to understand the beast's power and warning of the church, and he is to marvel at the self-destructive tendency at work among the ungodly. Two statements, however, directly relate the believers to urge Christians to be steadfast, steadfast and faithful during evil times. First... When Revelation 17, 14 tells of the Lamb's conquest, it adds that those, who, those with him are called chosen and faithful. Here's a good definition of a Christian. The followers of Christ are those who have answered the call of the gospel to saving faith. They are those chosen by God's sovereign grace, which ensures their eternal salvation. Their duty is simply to be faithful to their Savior and Lord. Moreover, the faithfulness of Christians... Uh, and opposing evil are not only not only proves their salvation, but makes the real contribution of Jesus' victory in the end. The second thing we note is that the angel said to God's sovereignty, God has put into their hearts to carry out his purpose until the words of God are fulfilled. That means that God is not surprised by anything that happens in this evil age. The apparent advance of evil does not mean that God has even lost control. He knows the end from the beginning since he is the Alpha and the Omega, and believers can trust him, including this wisdom in working both against evil throughout, uh, working against evil and through evil to glorify himself and eternally bless his people. Moreover, God, moreover God's word is certain to be fulfilled. And the angel said that his vision calls for mind and with wisdom. Our wisdom comes by carefully observing, believing, and practicing everything revealed in God's word, the teaching which is perfect, which is the perfect reviving of the soul, and to make sure uh, 
that we are wise and simple, as Psalm 19.7 states. And so we paint this picture uh, from chapter 17 of the scarlet, the prostitute here, the harlot and the beast. And we see how they will essentially devour each other and the world will turn and turn in on upon itself. And uh, that is essentially what the God ungodly have done throughout the age of the church. They continue to persecute the church, but then they turn upon themselves and seek more power and glory for the, the world's eyes than they would ever turn to God. And so we wrap up the episode and we talk about how this is starting to unfold and we get this picture painted for us as we move into the next section of text, which will be in chapter 18. And we will talk about the fall of Babylon next week. And we have a lot of content there as we also get into chapter 19, where we will see uh, the rejoicing in heaven and the marriage of the supper, marriage supper of the lamb, the rider and the white horse. And then we get to chapter 20, some of those famous verses with the thousand year reign. And so we will walk ourselves through that as well. And so we will continue to use the method of interpretation once we get to that portion of text and we will talk about some of the various views and things like that. So that is going to wrap up today's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. It's a lot of content, pretty deep uh, in regards to what is going on. But if we started to peel back and look at these things um, in a clear picture, we can see that, you know, they are not to be taken, you know, in a literal sense, but can be taken symbolically and they help to understand how uh, this has been just an ongoing persecution from the beginning of the uh, ascension of Christ through the end of this age where Christ will return and destroy the beast and the prostitute. So, that is all for me this week. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you guys have a wonderful weekend, and we will see you next Friday. God bless. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Confidence starts with loving who you are. 
And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.